Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are doing a series through verses 28 through 30. This is our second part in the series today. Follow along as I read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, for He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray and just ask God to open our eyes to this text this morning. Father, we do come to you uh, and, and, and ask that you uh, do a work in our hearts and in our lives today as we look into this text. Um, God, uh, who, who is it that knows your mind? Um, none of us pretend to uh, completely understand you or know the way that you think and move and act and plan. Uh, yet, uh, we come to passages like this that um, we believe are your word, something that you have revealed to us in your scriptures. And so we ask that you help us to understand uh, first of all, why you even gave us this, and second, second of all, what it means for us in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I want to uh, focus your attention on verse 28 right there. Everybody look at verse 28 in your Bible. We know, everybody say no, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 29, you see that word for right there? Everybody see that? That's a word that simply means because, all right? So there's the promise. We know that everything that happens in life works together for good, for our benefit, for or because, and then he gives us this unbreakable chain of God's action, which, which shows to us why and how all things work together for good. So all things work together for good, for our benefit, because everybody that he foreknew, so we looked at last week, everybody that he foreloved, everyone that he set his affections upon, every one of them, it says, he then predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word predestined. Break it down. Pre-destiny. Do you believe in destiny? Whenever I think of that question, like, do you believe in destiny, I just picture a couple romantics, you know, like talking to each other, gazing into each other's eyes, asking themselves, were we destined for one another? Are you my destiny? And, and they're gushing over each other. Or maybe uh, we think of destiny in, in, the, in the context of like a dreamer, someone who has dreams of uh, being an entrepreneur or uh, starting a business, being a CEO, or starting a nonprofit, and, and then they might say something like, this is my destiny, right? 
This is what I've been called to. I, I, this is what I've been made for in my life. Now, here's the problem with the way that we typically think of destiny. The problem is we typically think of destiny, we link destiny to the American dream. So we think of it in terms of career ambitions, things that we're going to do with our life, ways that we're going to spend our time, ways that we're going mi- to make money, or we think of it in terms of our love lives. The problem is this, it's too small. That's too small. Like what about um, when the love comes to an end? What about like the moment that she leaves you or that he dies? Do you still have destiny beyond that? Is there still a greater plan beyond our love life? Um, what about uh, those moments when our career ambitions just flunk? Like we just, we stop in, in our career ambitions. We, um, we flunk out of school, we get laid off, we uh, are sidetracked with other things, uh, families enter life and, and they keep us from getting the degree that we wanted to get. Like what happens when what we thought was going to be sort of our destiny, what we were created for, what happens when that just fizzles out? Like, is there some kind of greater plan um, that goes far beyond the failures, the setbacks, the sufferings? You see, when Romans was written, when this book, when this letter was written to the Christians where? Pop quiz? In what city? Rome. Um, they were still, in this moment, enjoying sort of relative freedom. However, the, uh, the lights of hope in this world were quickly dimming for them. The lights of the uh, hope in the, the Roman dream, we could call it, those lights were dimming. Things were looking darker. The, the, the dark clouds of relentless persecution and bloodshed were starting to roll in. A mere uh, seven to eight years after this letter was written, the Apostle Paul, according to tradition, was murdered in Rome. So imagine you as a Roman, Roman citizen, you get this letter, and the culture right now, it's sort of drifting toward the stage is being set for the murder of the person that's writing this letter. Um, Meaning... Suffering, uh, loss of their hopes, dreams, aspirations in this world, career ambitions, many of them losing their families, some of them possibly losing their homes, their properties, all of those, all of that was a reality for them. It was very imminent. And so when Paul then, when he's writing, all things work together for good. Like, that's going to immediately just perk some ears here in Rome. All things, like right now, even as you see the dark clouds of persecution rolling in, all things work together for your benefit. Those of you who might have just had your job ripped from you, you lost your land, all things work together for your benefit. Why? And here it is. Enter the doctrine of predestination. Predestiny. Everybody say that. Pre 
destiny. Simply means parizo. Look at, look, at, look at the word right here. For those who have been foreknown, foreknew, he also predestined. Predestiny. Proorizo. It simply means that the things that are going to happen, the plan for your life has already been planned out by God. Meaning this, God has a destiny for you, Roman citizen. For you, Christian in the Roman Empire, as things are starting to look bleak, as the destiny that you thought was going to be yours in this world is no longer there, what he's saying is, is that God has a greater destiny for you. There is a secret plan of God, and listen, all things, he's saying, are working together to bring about that plan. Now, I'm not going to play games this morning and pretend that the doctrine of predestination isn't a controversial, controversial doctrine. Um, it is. I was uh, speaking with a man in Baltimore about a year ago, and we were talking about uh, faith, and somehow Reformed faith popped up, and and the word predestination was used at some point. And he looked at me with just with this really interesting, curious face, sort of like, almost as if uh, we were talking about believing that a T-Rex just walked in front of uh, my house on McCullough Street. You know, sort of like, do people still believe in predestination? Like, scratching his head, like, this, isn't that like a, some kind of medieval doctrine, theology, like, pe- do people still believe in these sort of things? Do people still believe in predestination? One author put it this way. He said, it's, um, there, there are two things that are always true about the doctrine of predestination. Number one, it's important. And number two, it's controversial. Those two things are always true about this doctrine that we are studying today. It's important because we see it here. All right, so we see it like w- when you read the Bible, you get this sense all through the scriptures that God is a predestinating God, that God is a God uh, who is sovereign, meaning in control, and that he is a God that pre-plans. And so we, we try to wiggle around through it and try to avoid texts like these. I mean, there may be a church out there that's, ne- that's just completely steered clear of Romans eight twenty nine. Because we don't know what to do with it. So it's important because it's there. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, God is referring to the people of Israel specifically. And he says this about them. He says, I chose you above all other people. So when God first chose Israel, there was this sense that he chose them above all other people and had some kind of plan worked out for them. In in Acts chapter 4 verse 28, referring to the cross, the crucifixion, of Jesus, it says this. It says, The Gentiles and Pilate did what God had predestined them to do, meaning that God planned for the Gentiles and for Pilate to put Jesus to death. And so they were doing the plan of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul put it this way He says that we, Christians, we were, in view of this coming Savior, we were predestined, he says, to be adopted as children. So God is a predestinating God. Now, it's controversial because 
we've traded the, the, the truth for a lie. The truth of the, the magnificence and the power of an almighty, righteous, just, and holy God for a lie that says you are at the center. You are in control. You see, us in our fallen state, we cannot deal with the fact that God is greater and more powerful than we are. And so even though we look at our salvation as something by grace, we still want to be the one that's in control of that. Even though we look at our spiritual growth as something that God helps us with, we still want to be the one who is responsible for that. It concerns me when I hear Christians start talking about their conversion and their spiritual growth with uh, using the word I. I did this, I did this, and then I did this. Look at what I have done. Like it's, it, I am at the center of everything that I do, and I am in control of my own destiny. That is what we want in our fallen fleshly state. As we come, become Christians, that is the way that we think. But as we come to the scriptures, and as we learn, we begin to realize that God is in control of our destiny. And we place ourselves in the background behind his voice, behind his plan. And so we then, um, desiring to be at the center, we, we, we often create a culture uh, in our Christian world where we, instead of begging God on our knees for a revival to sweep through the city, we, we just put it on the calendar and we say, okay, from uh, August 1st through August 6th, there's going to be a revival, and then everybody gets around the planning table, and who's going to do the music, all right, who's going to do the preaching, who are we going to come in to preach the revival, all right, and then who's going to let God know, like somebody's got to get on the horn there, and then God's like, whoa, I didn't even know you guys were doing this, like, all right, let me, let me get some things moving here for you, right? I mean, we, cr we have created, over the last hundred years, created a culture where we think that we can, on our own individual effort, work up a revival instead of falling on our knees begging God to move in such a way that we cannot. Um, we, uh, instead of bowing ourselves at the foot of the cross, begging for mercy as a fallen, broken sinner, we use language like pulling blessings down. Instead of seeing God at the very center and the, the very core of our conversion, our, meaning our coming to faith, we then create a culture where we walk an aisle and we choose for Christ. Now listen, we do choose for Christ, all right? There is a sense where you do choose Christ, and you did choose Christ. You turn, we're going to talk about that next, in two weeks. But what we have to stop right now, and this is where we must humble ourselves and step back and look at what the doctrine is, predestination is telling us. We didn't first and foremost choose Christ. Christ first and foremost chose you. Meaning this, like, when, when I chose Christ, when I accepted the faith, when I saw the gospel, when I heard the gospel, and I saw Christ, 
what was it that gave me the ability to, to, to see these things? The, the way that the scriptures describe our state prior to coming to Christ, Romans chapter 1 says this, it says, they, referring to those who are outside of Christ, says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So before you came to Christ, unless you were saved at like a really young age and you don't really remember much before that, before we came to Christ, you, you probably remember a time that you did not see fit to acknowledge God. Like you had a sense that there was a God, yet you didn't see fit in your thinking and in sort of your sphere, your worldview, what you had planned for your life. You didn't see fit to acknowledge God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it makes it even, goes deeper with it, stronger, shows how, how drastic our state once was. It says this, it says that you were once dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now how can dead people believe? How can dead people choose to become alive? How can the the bones at the bottom of the valley of death choose to put themselves back together and put flesh and muscle upon themselves and choose to start breathing once again? The answer is this. It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle. What God has done for you is he has spoken the, the, his word powerfully over you as the, as the prophet did over the valley of dry bones and you just simply woke up. I mean, we were a corpse, a swollen, nasty, smelly corpse and God spoke his word over us and we woke up. Now, what we're going to see here is this. First of all, let me back up. It is, when we talk about this, this word predestined, it is a shame to reduce this simply to a controversial um, debate about whether or not God chose some and not others. What we're going to see here is that that's not what this is about. What this is about is about a specific plan that God had for you, an undeserving, deserving, swollen corpse, to raise you to life, to bring you into a new reality, and to create a destiny for you that is beyond your comprehension. So, Let's dive into that word again, predestined, predestiny. It means this. It means all of those who he foreloved, all of those who he set his affections upon, he decided what they would, what they would become. So God, as, as he loved you, didn't just stop there, but he also said, I have a plan for your life. Like, I am deciding what you will become. Look at it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now there's two actions here of God which help us to see what he predestined us to become. Number one, look at it. Predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, there might be 
an objection right off the bat that says, I don't know if I want to be like Jesus. Like, dude wasn't married. Um, he was probably serious all the time. He died a violent death as a young man. Like, I don't know if I, like, I might want to be like, uh, name it. Uh, who, who, who do you want to be like? Kanye West? And Jesus? Nobody wants to be like Kanye West, do you? I mean, we might have images like, that's who I want to be like. I want to be like that. But the idea of like, do I really want to be like Jesus? You know, do I, is that really my ultimate destiny? Is that what I want my ultimate destiny to be? Listen, if, if you at all have any inclination toward that kind of objection, I want to rephrase it for you. Do you want to be accepted by God? Like the creator God who created you, created this world, is sustaining all things. Do you want to be accepted by God? Do you want to live a life that matters in this world? Do you want to, uh, once you die someday, be able to wake up from the dead, standing before the judgment seat of God, and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into my presence. Friends, we want to be like Jesus. Now let's look at it. Our destiny, he says. You have been predestined to be, he says, conformed to the image of Christ. So here's you, okay? Struggling with sin every day. Amen? Like Romans chapter 7, if you know Paul's what Paul says there, he says, the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I do want to do, I don't do. Like, how many of us can resonate with that? Like, every day, like, I wake up, and I want to do this, and then I don't, and then I do want to, or I don't want to do that, and I end up falling into it once again. So here, here's you, wrestling, wrestling. Like, you don't want to go back to the salt water of sexual addiction, but you did. Again, you don't want to deal with your pride anymore, and you want to be, you want to humble yourself and, 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 and walk humbly through this world, and then you find yourself puffed up again. You, you drank too much again. You wanted to speak differently to your children and respect your children, and then you lashed out at them Again, right? Like we are in this flesh, we are constantly warring with what we don't want to be versus what we do want to be. So that's our current state, right? Now, here's Jesus over here. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, all right? He wanted to, in his heart, please the Father and listen, he did. Like, he just did what he wanted to do. If he didn't want to do that, he didn't. Perfect, active obedience. Jesus was merciful and loving to those who I so easily judge. Jesus looked at the leper. He looked at the, the prostitute, and he lent a hand. He offered mercy. Those who we often want to align ourselves with, the powerful, 
the religious leaders, Jesus, um, angry without sin, stood for truth among the wolves, lived a life perfectly pleasing to God. Listen, this is what this passage is saying. I want you to hear this. You, friends, have been predestined. Here's you. You've been predestined to become like Jesus. Like, you are going, not might. You are going to become like Jesus. It's your destiny. There is a transformation that has already begun inside of us. And what this is telling us is that transformation will continue and it will not be finished until we are completely conformed to the very image of Christ. Listen, next time you're sitting in a house community and you're, you're, you're working with, you're trying, trying to listen, trying to love people, like think about this. Think about this. Think about how we are right now in a state where the transformation work has begun. We have been regenerated. We have been made new. Yet we are still warring with our flesh. Yet there is coming a day that like the, the, the glory of Christ will just shine through our pores and we will be forever changed. I was sitting in our house community a few months ago and we were sort of small group just talking through various things in the scriptures and in our lives and and uh, this specific house community was difficult like kids were knocking things over just like I knocked over my coffee over here you know disturbing people and and uh, we were trying to love each other we're trying you know but but uh, some folks had uh, tension with uh, with work and with their schedules and at home and we had tension I mean I could sense it this person really didn't like the way this person just answered that question and there's like this relational tension, you know, but we're, we're trying. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know how often when we sit in small groups, it's like we're really trying hard to love each other, to get into each other's lives, to, to, to be who we know we are. Yet, wouldn't you guys agree that often it's very hard to do? Like, it's often it's like we're bumping into our flesh constantly at every turn but here's the glorious thing and this is this is uh, this passage came to my mind as we're sitting doing this i thought man how beautiful is this like there is a transformation work that has begun in us we are learning to love each other in a way that we previously never would do we're learning to interact in ways we're learning to forgive we're learn, learning to encourage, to think outside of ourselves in ways that we previously never would. But the, the glorious thing is this, is that at our best moments, it is dim compared to what we will become. Like there is a moment where I'm just thinking of my house community right now, all right, my small group. There's a moment where we will just like shine, we will radiate with the, the, the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Like, what we have right now is, is, is like a whisper in a loud echoing room. What we have right now is like a dim light in the midst of a sea of darkness. But what we see here 
is that we are predestined to be overwhelmed by the light. And that one day, like us sitting here right now, like the, 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 the uh, transformation that has already begun inside of you will completely be finished. And like Moses and Elijah standing there with Christ glowing, we will shine with the radiance and the beauty and the mag- magnificence of Christ. The, in our best moments right now, when we are learning to love God and love each other, like that will be the new norm for us. And notice, look at, look at the passage. He says, we will be conformed to, it says, the image of his son. So what we see here is that this isn't like a light that, that uh, comes from us on our own. Like the sun, S-U-N, okay? But rather, we are a light like the moon that is reflecting the light of the sun. We, we are shining a light that is reflecting the image of Christ. That is our destiny. That is what we will become. Another way to look at this and another way to approach this is in this way. How does one change? How does, how does somebody change? Like, how, do, how does somebody become better? Growing up personally in, in the, the moralistic 1990s, I grew up in like a Christian youth group, a Christian school, and I believed that my, my spiritual change would come through just simply trying harder. I just got to try harder. I got to muster up more energy. True love waits. Well, what if true love forgot to wait? You know, then we end up with like 10 rings on our fingers trying to remind us, no, true love does wait. Let me get another ring, right? Those of you that grew up in the 90s. And we, like, how does somebody change? Or another way to ask it, what do we feed off of so that we may change? Do we feed off of our own effort? Do we feed off of the reminders that we can give us, the strings that we wrap around our fingers? The, the, I remember uh, in the 90s, the, the way that uh, we were told to battle pornography was to put a picture of your mom on your computer and that'll remind you, you know, it's like, well, the picture goes away, you know, like, but let's just put another remind. Like, let's feed off of reminders. Let's feed off of uh, th- things that we can kind of put in our pet. Like, how are we going to change? We're going to feed off of our own effort. We're going to wait till New Year's, and then we're going to make a resolution, and then we're going to feed off of our New Year's resolution. That's going to bring about change. Or we're going to sign a commitment card, or a recommitment card, or a re re recommitment card, and I'm going to feed off of my new commitment to God. Like, how do we change? Friends, the answer is this. God changes us. God God changes us through this, through feeding off 
of Christ. You see, the, the fact that Christ lived a righteous life is not just some nice bit of our Christian history, but that is an act of righteousness that is distributed to you today so that you may be obedient to God, so that you may change. Now, how do we feed off of Christ? I believe that God has given us the means to feed off of Christ. Regularly, we come and the word is preached. The, the gospel is heard over and over and over again. We feed off of the word that is preached. We confess our sins together. We, we get on our knees and we confess our sins and then we are reminded again of forgiveness. We are feeding off of the forgiveness that Christ offers us. We regularly come as a community to the table and we take communion together, this symbolic act of feeding off of Christ in which that we are reminding ourselves of his sacrifice. We're reminding ourselves of the fact that his body was broken so that we may be made whole. Friends, listen, why is it that we should participate in the means of grace that God has given us, in listening to the word being preached, in singing a song together, in partaking in communion, in your individual prayer and Bible reading. It is because these, it's sort of, these are like the hoses, all right, through which the water of Christ flows through so that we may feed off of Christ. And then how do we change? What we find is this, as we feed off of Christ, God just simply changes us. He just simply changes us. In the same way that uh, your, your initial uh, aha, I believe the gospel, coming into faith, in the same way that that was grace, every uh, act of obedience on your part is also grace. It is God giving you the strength and the power to say yes to him. And why? All right, second action here. He gives us the why. He tells us why he does this for us. Look at it. For those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Look at this. In order that. So he's about to tell us why he's doing this. Why is it that he would raise you up and conform you into the very image of Christ, that that is your ultimate destiny. Why? In order that, look at it, he, referring to Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what does that mean? I had about a one and a half com hour conversation yesterday with the Jehovah's Witness. It was awesome. Like they were trying to leave, and I was like, yo, you came to my house. You're staying here. There was like four of them. And, uh, um, but, so we went to this text, actually, and so they told me that firstborn means that Jesus was the first created by God. Is that what it means? What, is, what does firstborn mean? Now, in order to understand 
what firstborn means, that he is the firstborn among many brothers. We have to understand something about um, first century and then ancient Judaism family culture. Uh, the firstborn in a family was the one who was given preeminence. The firstborn in a family was the one who would receive the inheritance. Firstborn in the family was the one who would receive the honor. They were like just basically the top dog. The firstborn. What this is saying is, it's not saying that Jesus was the first created. John 1 gives us a problem with that. What this is saying is, is this. It's saying the Father wanted the eternal, only, unique Son, second person of the Trinity. He wanted His Son to have, listen, many brothers and sisters so that He may enjoy firstborn status. So that He may be preeminent. So that we, his brothers and sisters, may look at our older brother and say, he is the most glorious of us all. So that we, his brothers and sisters, may be able to look at our older brother and say, he is the one that, that deserves all of the honor and all of the glory. He is the best. He is the top dog among us. Listen, what this is saying is this. Why does God save us? Why does God show His grace? Why, did, why, why does He shower us in His, in His mercy instead of just simply giving us what we deserve? Why then does He not only show us His mercy, but then He also conforms us into the image of His own Son, Jesus Christ? Why does He do these wonderful things for us? Listen, it is for the glory of Christ. He does this so that Christ may have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters who look at him and say he's the best. He is preeminent. He is first and foremost. He is the one who is worthy of most honor. Now, let's bring all of this back to life today. What does this mean for your life today? Number one, it means that even the suffering in your life is part of God's plan in making you like Jesus. Even the suffering that you are facing right now in your life, the weight of this world, is part of God's plan in making you like Jesus. I can only imagine after, after uh, the Apostle Paul was murdered about seven or eight years after the writing of this letter. The... Uh, his, his brothers and sisters, the other Christians, maybe they took his body, they had, had a word together, they buried him, they went out for drinks, went home, whatever they would do after the funerals. And I can only imagine how they may have come together in a living room and pulled out the letter that he wrote seven or eight years prior. Now they're in the midst of it. They're in the thick of it. The dark clouds have completely rolled in and there is suffering all around them. I can only imagine what it might have been like then to get to this section of the letter. 
and they read this. Look at verse 18. They read this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Like all of this, friends, is encased in this issue of suffering. I wonder if they read that, how they might have, through tears, said, wow, we're now beginning to see what God was speaking to us through Paul. That not even, like all of the suffering that we're now facing, none of that is worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And then as they keep reading, as they skip down to verse 28, and then we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Even the suffering, even the problems that we face, all things now work together for our benefit. For those he foreknew, for those he foreloved, he had a plan for their life. And he had, a, he had a destiny for them far greater than the Roman dream could ever give them. Friends, this morning, I want you to give up our version of the Roman dream. I want you to give up the American dream. I want you to give up the, the belief that, that uh, significance is found in your job, in your Uh, the things that you have in your uh, status here in this world, in your recognition. I want you to give up, I mean, in this moment, what we, when we think of our destiny here, and we think of things in terms of like, what do I want to do with my life? And we think of it in terms of American dream uh, defined success. Friends, this would have been so irrelevant in this moment, to these believers. Like, God has a plan for you, a secret plan for you, so far beyond what we plan for ourselves. So far beyond the challenges that are in life. And so when things begin to fail and your love falls apart, when your job falls apart, when you flunk out, things, I mean, you see it like sand going between your fingers and you're losing what you have worked for. You work hard and you're not recognized. You're getting older. You're approaching retirement and wondering what, what now will my life be about? What, listen, what we see here is this, is that um, no matter what happens in your life, if the love doesn't work out, or if you never find the love life that you thought you were going to find. If the career doesn't materialize, your dreams don't materialize, all things are part of God's secret plan for your life with the goal that you will become like Jesus. He will use the suffering and the problems to make you more like Jesus. Jesus. The second meaning for us today is this. It means that you can breathe a sigh of relief because you're no longer trusting in yourselves. You can breathe a sigh of relief and you can just simply rest and trust in God's work in your life. Guys, I want us to daily just be astonished that God would save us. 
I want us to daily like be just amazed that he would save someone like me who is so undeserving of his grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want us to be astonished at God's grace. But what I, what, what I want us to also rest in and see is that in the same way that his grace saved us, his grace is also conforming us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. And we can simply rest in his grace. So then we have faith that God will do what he has promised here to do in our lives. He will activate obedience in your life. He will move into that like, you might say, man, like, there is this, this bit of my life, there is this piece of my heart. Like, I don't see obedience there. And it would take a miracle for me to be obedient in that area of my life. The answer is yes, it would. And that is exactly what God has promised us is that he will continue to do miracle after miracle, grace after grace, and transform us. And he will not be finished until we are completely conformed into the image of Christ. Now, last question, final question. How do we know? How do we know that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing to Christians and he's, he's wanting to, he wants to insure, uh, assure the Christians of God's love for them. And this is how he says it, writing to the Christians. He says, so imagine he was writing to us as a local church. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Listen, we know that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God because when we hear the word of God, it convicts us. It's that simple. We're convicted. We say, oh, yeah, that's me. That's me. Listen, why would God convict us? It's because he's doing a work in our hearts and in our lives. Friends, we are to take assurance in these verses right here. As we read these verses, we are to take assurance in the unbreakable chain of God's saving action in our life. You have heard the gospel. You saw the reality of sin, you saw the beauty of Christ, and you believed. Take assurance of God's work in your life. You, hear, you come and you hear the word on Sundays, and you are convicted. You're home reading the Bible, and you are convicted. Take assurance of God's work in your life. All of this, friends, is to lead us to rest in Christ and to, be, to, to know, going back to verse 28, to know that all things work together for good. To know that God is moving in us, that he is saving us, and that he does love you. I love the way that Psalm 107, verse 2 puts it. It simply says this, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Like, God wants you 
to have assurance in your life that He is moving and working in you and doing something far beyond what you can imagine. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Has God redeemed you from sin? Then say so. Has God given you victory over the power of the enemy? Then say it. Has God released you from the power of the chains of shame in your life? Then say it. Has God showered His mercy on you? Then say it. Friends, let's take assurance in the work of God in our life this morning. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, we ask that you uh, assure us of, our, of your love for us. We find ourselves humbly on this unbreakable chain. We realize that you have loved us that through your word you have convicted us and we find through that just simply through, through the sense that we have been convicted through hearing the gospel, we, we know that we're part of this unbreakable chain. We thank you, God, for the fact that you have given us this promise that you will continue to work in us, that you have a destiny for us so far beyond anything that we can imagine and that we uh, will be conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. God, let us have faith in that. Increase our faith. May we see Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.